Bible reading is from Psalm 19. That's on page 471. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has twitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servants warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of a great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, the Lord, oh, sorry, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The second reading is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But but their thinking became fertile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies and with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, 5 p.m. I feel a bit like John Farnham on his farewell tour. I think I told you that I was going to be here for my last service a few weeks back, but here I am again, and uh, it's great to be with you as we explore this question tonight of how can you know there is a God? Uh, my friend Carolina came with us on Tuesday night to the Conversations That Matter night, and uh, we explored this question together. 
In preparation, she wrote me this three-page document about the reasons she believes that there is not a God. Uh, It's pretty impressive, isn't it? I know many Christians who do believe in God who couldn't articulate three pages worth of reasons for believing, Uh, but Carolina wrote this for me. Uh, In it, she said these words, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that to me, the representation of God in Christian religions leaves a lot to be desired and is perhaps the reason why I am not a believer. I found that pretty scathing as someone who seeks to represent God in the world and to the people in my life. Um, But as we spoke through the night and discussed, and I was on a table with Mahia and some other friends, it became clear and evident that the God that Carolina doesn't believe in is definitely not the God that I do believe in. And it's interesting how we forge our concepts of God and who he is and what he's like, because often we're quite like bowerbirds in the way we approach it. You know the bowerbird. Goes around and finds little blue things, a blue feather, a blue bottle top, a blue shell, and it decorates its nest. And many of us do the same with God. We take little snippets here and there, a conversation, something we read on Sydney Morning Herald, a difficult experience with a religious family member, a school chapel service or a funeral that we went to, and we we piece it all together, and and it's not just a decoration, it's actually a nest, a home that we cradle our whole worldview in, a, a place in which we actually put our lives, our future, and even our death. So our goal for tonight is to actually let the God revealed in the Bible speak into this conversation about how you can know there is a God. Uh, I, I'm hardly going to do justice to 66 books of the Bible written by 40 authors over 1,600 years, but we're going to look at two passages together and see what that has to contribute to the conversation. So uh, I'd love you to open again to Psalm 19. It's on page 471, and we're going to invite God to speak into this debate about why, how we can know there is a God. As you turn there, Psalm 19, just two preliminary comments. The first is that you cannot definitively prove God's existence. Neither can you definitively prove his non-existence. In fact, if you talk to the great philosophical minds of human history, uh, they would tell you that you can't prove anything at all. You can't even prove that you exist or that we are here. Uh, In spite of all our wonderful technological advances and scientific developments, no one can give a good account for what consciousness is. We're better off, uh, rather than looking for definitive proof, we're better off asking the question, what is reasonable to believe? Or as they say in a court of law, what can you prove beyond reasonable doubt? It's important that you know right from the front that there is no room for blind faith in Christianity. Christians are not people who believe in God in spite of evidence. Christians are people who have examined the evidence and found good reasons for believing in God. The second comment is that there might be some here in this discussion who are thinking, what does it even matter if there is a God? I often think that people who ask that question 
uh, are a little like a fish swimming through the ocean asking, what does it matter if there's water? We are so imbued in a world where God's providence and provision and protection is just part of the air that we breathe that we can think that we can do with him or without him. We don't even ponder those big questions. But more than just the, the sort of pragmatics of day-to-day life, there's important philosophical realities that we have to come to terms with. Uh, and that is that there are four really important questions that every worldview needs to answer. And if you have found a way of answering these big questions uh, devoid of a greater being, then please do come and inform me because I'm probably in the wrong industry and I'd love to make a change before I start my new job. Uh, the four questions are these questions. The question of origin, where did we come from? How can there be life without life to create it in the first place? The question of purpose, why am I here? Who gives me purpose? The question of morality, how can I really know what is right and wrong, not just what everyone says is right and wrong, what is really true? And the question of destiny, what will happen to me when I die? If you have been able to answer those questions beyond reasonable doubt without the presence of a God or greater being, please do come and teach me. I'm eager to learn. Well, let's, let's give the God of the Bible a voice into this conversation. God, how can you know there is a God? Well, Psalm 19 says, look up. Look up is our first instruction How can you know there's a God? Look up to the heavens. Verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. I have a friend, Andrew, and I go to the gym in the morning with Andrew, and often he points out the window at a beautiful sunrise, and he says, look, another masterpiece. And, you know, if you were standing in front of one of Claude Monet's Lily's paintings... And you're there with a friend, and they started asking questions about what and about when. You know, if they started saying, that's oil on canvas. How long do you reckon that painting's been around? It's impressive it's lasted. When do you think it began? You'd say you're asking the wrong questions, man. Look at the beauty. What an artist. Why did he paint this way? And we're meant to think the same things as we look up at the heavens. We are meant to ask those questions. Who did this? Why? Why does it exist? Psalm 2 says the heavens answer these kinds of questions. Verse 2, sorry, of Psalm 19. Verse 2, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. What do they say? What do they reveal? Well, our second reading gave us a hint. Romans 1.20 said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So as you look up, there is a general revelation of what God is like, big, powerful, creative. But there's a paradox, isn't there? Because... The story that a tranquil twilight tells about this God is very different to what a terrifying tornado will tell you. So if it was just look up, well, we'd be left maybe a bit frightened, in awe, but 
maybe a bit distant. But the God of the Bible is a God who's interested in relationship. He, he doesn't just want our general disposition to be right towards him. He wants to know us. And the heart of relationship is words. And so that's why we're not meant to just look up, but we're also meant to look down. Look down into God's word. How can you know there's a God? Look down into the Bible. I often challenge people who uh, think that, uh, that you know, perhaps God is absent from this world to think of a better way that God could reveal himself than through his word in the Bible. And I've heard all number of different suggestions. You know, you've got the be the constant presence in the sky. Every time you look up, there's big brother watching over you. But, you know, history tells us that when God was a constant presence in the sky as the Israelites came out of Egypt and headed towards their land, well, that was one of the most rebellious generations that ever lived. So, so that didn't work. Or others have suggested maybe God could just do a world tour every hundred years, you know, just come around, meet the people. But history tells us last time God came to the people, we murdered him in his son Jesus Christ. So we're not sure if regular uh, visits like that is the future either. So I think God revealing himself to us in his word, in words, is genius. You know, if, if Shakespeare wanted to reveal himself to the characters in his play, well, they couldn't just walk around the stage looking for Shakespeare. No, he needs to write himself in, which God has done in his words, and soon we're going to see in his son, Jesus Christ. Words are great. Words don't change. Words can be translated. Words can speak again and again and again. Words can keep on communicating the one same message. We see that the psalmist, David, he goes from looking up, wow, God, this is amazing, it's declaring you, to looking down, verses 7 to 10, just a, a big shift down to God's word. And verses 7 to 10 give us uh, some insights into what we can expect to find when we look for God in his word, the Bible. God's word in verses 7 to 10 is given six different titles. Have a look with me. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord, that is, instructions worthy of our reverence. And then the decrees of the Lord. God's word, we're told, has nine qualities. Verse 7, it's perfect. It's trustworthy. Verse 8, it's right. It's radiant. Verse 9, it's pure, enduring forever. It's firm. Verse 10, it is full of intrinsic worth, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. God's word is given, has four results. Verse 7, it refreshes the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes, verse 8. So in just a few short verses, the claim is made there in the Bible that you'll discover a God who has spoken in clear, articulate ways about what life is like, what it's about, how it's to be lived. And they are really good words. And they're life-giving words. So we can see God as we look up, as powerful, majestic, creative. We can see God as good, as relational, as life-giving, 
as we look down. So then why do so many people have such a darn hard time finding God in this world? You and I, we could probably testify saying, why is it hard to draw close to God? Well, our third point tonight is that we are to look around. How can you know there is a God? Look around at ourselves. It's easy when we think about God's hiddenness to, you know, shake our fist at the sky and say, come on, God. Make yourself more obvious. But the Bible turns that idea upside down, and it actually says that rather than blame God, the Bible blames us for God's hiddenness. It actually says that by our own rebellion against him, we've cut ourselves off. The word of God, as we've, we've read it, and, and if you've read it before, it reveals a great God who is good, pure, perfect, holy, always loving, always good, always kind. And look, if you and I are totally honest, we know that we're far from that. And the Bible calls that our sin, and it actually cuts us off from God. Our second reading tonight told us that actually it it causes us to suppress the truth. We actually suppress the truth by our wickedness. We, We blind ourselves to what is true. I don't know if you felt uncomfortable as that second reading was read, It went so far as to say that by our own pursuit of sinful desires, it spoke of sexual desires, we can blind ourselves, darken ourselves to God's truth, suppress that truth so that we can't even hear it. I've been a pastor here for the last six years, and I've shared many wonderful moments with many, many people. But I've also been part of some terrible moments in life like speaking to people who are engaging in extramarital affairs. And to be totally honest, it doesn't matter what you tell them. You can say, you are going to destroy your life by this decision. You will ruin your family. You will put your reputation, your integrity in tatters if you do this. But their desire for their own pleasure, for sexual pleasure, causes them to completely blind themselves to truth. Now, for many of us, it's not going to be something as extreme as an affair. But for all of us, we let our own passions and desires rule us. And if we're honest, sometimes we know the right thing, but we choose the wrong. And that causes us to be blocked off from God, to be darkened to his reality. So we find ourselves at an impasse. How can you know there is a God when we have cut ourselves off from him, are blinded to him, and his holiness means that he can't come into our presence because we couldn't stand it? So we're stuck. Unless Shakespeare writes himself into the play, which he's done, God has done, in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. So uh, so point four, how can you know there's a God? Look back. Look back to Jesus. There was an ironic scene in that video that we watched where the girl stands and looks in a mirror and she says, I often asked God for a sign, just some proof that he really was there. He never gave me anything. The irony is that dangling around her neck is a cross, the clearest sign in human history that God has come amongst us. 
In the person of Jesus Christ, God has come to reveal himself, to make himself known. Jesus, the historical man, was known by two names in the course of his life. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus, a derivative of Joshua in Hebrew, that means God saves. By his life, he revealed himself to be God with us. His immaculate conception. The angels that were there celebrating his birth. The constellation-shifting star that announced his time and his place of his arrival. He lived a very ordinary life until the age of 30 when he entered into public ministry and then began to reveal and display the power and authority that only God has. Healing the sick with touch, with just words. Showing power and authority over nature. Showing power and authority even over death itself. He displayed himself in his teaching, in his works, his miracles, to be truly God with us. But it was in his death that he most revealed himself as Jesus, God saves. Because in his death on the cross, Jesus, who had lived a perfect life, a spotless life, a pure and godly life, he substituted himself and put himself under the curse of God. And he was very clear throughout the course of his life, the Bible prophesied it and promised it, that he would do that for you and for me with us on his mind. He would go and die a death in our place so that he could face God's judgment and we could have his righteous rewards and his life. So he revealed himself to be God with us, God saves, but the crowning jewel of his life and the revelation of God was his resurrection from the dead. No one has been able to give convincing evidence for where the body of Jesus ended up except for those who met him, his disciples, those who saw him over a period of 40 days, more than 500 different people at different times met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so his resurrection wonderfully shows him to be God amongst us. You know, it might surprise you to hear that even as a Christian minister, sometimes I have to ask myself, do I really believe this? Like, is this really all true? And sometimes I have to take myself for a walk. I did it the other day. And I had to go through it in my head. I had to have a discussion with God and say, is this real? And for me, it all boiled down to the fact that I am thoroughly convinced that the man Jesus Christ walked out of his tomb. There is an empty tomb on the other side of the world. And that if this man rose from the dead, I must pay attention to what he has revealed about God. I must pay attention to him and all that he said and all that he's done. These are the things that have kept me Christian over the years. But the things that brought me to God in the first place, do you know what it was? It was just that I... I picked up this book and I started reading it and in it I heard the voice of God. I heard God speaking to me, a God who loved me, who knew me better than I knew myself and wasn't afraid of my faults and failings, a God who was actually knocking on the door of my heart and saying, you know what, Ed, I want to come in. 
I want to come into your life and I want to have relationship with you. And so I challenge you, if, if you're someone who's not sure about all of this or you want to think about whether or not there is a God, just pick up a pa- the pages of the Bible because I've found time and time again that God in Jesus jumps off the pages of that book and you will see wonderful things as you read it. Well, the fifth and final point for tonight around how can you know there's a God is that the Bible says, look forward. One day, everyone will know there is a God when we meet him. One day, faith in God will give way to sight of God. And we will all appear before him. The Bible has presented a God who has made and fulfilled thousands of promises across the course of human history. But there is one promise that remains outstanding in the plans and purposes of God. And it's this, it's up on the screen there from Acts chapter 17. For he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. How we will stand before God, how we will be judged on that day, will not be about whether our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, but whether or not when God knocked... When God revealed himself, did we let him in? Did we invite him in when he came looking for us? For as the Bible says, God stands at the doorway of our hearts and he says, can I come in? I'd like to be in your life. I'd like to do life with you, to help you, to heal you, to restore you, to hold on to you, to never let you go. So how should, how should we respond to this God who's been revealed in the Bible? Well, I hope you've heard it loud and clear. We are to open our eyes. Open our eyes, look up, and recognize the God who has created all things and and the life-giving God. Look down into God's Word and receive His Word that speaks to our hearts, that gives us life and is life-giving and enriching. Look around at ourselves and recognize our own part in God's hiddenness and repent of the sin that has cut us off from God. Look back to Jesus and receive Jesus into your life. That death that he died in your place is is a free gift, yours to receive, yours to take into your life. And then look forward to the day when you'll meet him. And if you meet him trusting in Jesus, believing in his son, then you'll meet him as a friend, as a father, as a king who wants to welcome you home and welcome you into his eternal paradise. I know a man who didn't even believe there was a God. But he picked up the pages of the Bible and he started reading about Jesus. And as he met Jesus, he was so compelled by him, so taken by him, that through Jesus, he became convinced that there was a God. If you are to sum up how can you know there is a God, the Bible would say, Look to Jesus and you will find God. I'm going to pray for us and pray that God would help us look for Jesus and find God in that process. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have made yourself known as we look up into the heavens, giving us life. 
that you have spoken in your words the Bible, giving life to our souls. We're sorry for the way that we have rebelled against you, cutting ourselves off from you. And we welcome Jesus who came to fix that problem and bring our hearts back to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives prepared for the day when faith will give way to sight and we will see you. And we pray that we and many who we love and everyone here in this place tonight will be ready on that day, ready to meet you and ready to be welcomed into your eternal home. We pray this because we know that you listen when we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.